We've talked a lot about how good it is to be together, how incredible it is, and how we shouldn't take it for granted that we're together in person. Yes, we know um, so many of you are joining us at home, and we're grateful for that. We're just glad we can be, those of us who feel comfortable being here, we are so glad we can be uh, together. But it's not new. We think this is so brand new that, that we've not been able to be together and now we have this amazing opportunity. But the rabbis lived in a world where that was often the case. That people didn't see each other for years at a time. Sometimes decades. Sometimes they would only see each other once again in a lifetime. And we are incredibly blessed with a very long memory as a people And so I'd like to introduce you to a practice uh, that the rabbis have had for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and that is a bracha. We always say a bracha, and you have to have a reason to say a bracha. You're not allowed to say the name of God without having a real, legit reason for a bracha. So the rabbis, you may know in our tefillah, in our amidah, in the prayer that has all of those blessings, the rabbis craft for us. There's a blessing that we change in Reconstructionist Judaism. It's intru- the, the change is mechaye kochai, blessed are you God, giver of life to all living things. But the original bracha in a traditional siddur says, baruch ata adonai mechaye hametim, blessed are you God who uh, gives life to the dead. So this, of course, is referring to the trust in uh, the fact that we will be resurrected, bodily resurrected, uh, when the Mashiach comes, when Messiah comes. We, as Reconstructionists, have changed that liturgy. But I want you to know something beautiful about this bracha. Blessed are you, God, who gives life to the dead, is the bracha the rabbis assigned to seeing someone who you've not seen in a year or more. How beautiful a tradition is that? If you've not seen someone in a year or more, when you see them, you're supposed to say, Baruch ata Adonai mechaye hametim. Blessed are you, God, who enlivens the dead. <laughs> Let's say it together. Baruch ata Adonai mechaye hametim. How amazing. We are here. We are here to see one another again. Uh, some of us haven't seen each other in over, well over two years. Mechaye hametim. It is good to be uh, in person and it is good to be together even uh, at home. So many are at the sanctuary and in the social hall. I think one of the reasons we so needed this was not just because we missed being together, but right now in our world, in our country, as anytime you turn on the news, It is an incredibly difficult environment that we're all living in. We are living in a really difficult time in this country, and we're seeing it happen all over the world. One of the reasons I think we're so hungry and happy to come together is because it's hard right now to feel like we are a people outside of this room or the sanctuary. It's hard to feel like we're one country. It's so hard, and it's not just here. It's happening in so many places in this world right now. Looking around the world, it's happening in France, in Holland, in England, in Israel, now in Italy. It's happening all over the world. This incredible division within the citizenry of so many countries, a deep, deep division. 
As you know, I've been studying at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, uh, a three-year program, the uh, Rabbinic Leadership Initiative. I feel like I'm in the ninth year of a three-year program. Uh, this is now year four of our three-year program, thanks to COVID. Uh, but we have the great good fortune to study with some of the greatest minds in American, uh, Israeli, and uh, other places in this world uh, of Jewish life. It is a think tank. It is a place where we get together to think and to talk and to drop deeply into the ideas and the challenges of our time. And one of the things, of course, that was on the minds of all of our teachers was the idea of political polarization. The incredible polarization we see and feel and experience, not just in our own country, but as I said, all over the world. And one of our teachers, Micha Goodman, you know him from writing the book Catch 67, uh, Micha Goodman said to us, uh, there are changes that are happening in our world, massive changes that are unintended consequences. Yehuda Kurtzer said this as well, president of Shalom Hartman North America when he taught us. Unintended consequences of the technological age have caused major challenges for us. One is environmental. We know we are on the verge of environmental catastrophe. An unintended consequence of the technological age. The other unintended consequence is political polarization that has got us so deeply divided that we no longer feel like we belong to the same project, many of us. And so they asked us, if polarization is to democracy what environmental catastrophe is to, uh, to our planet, think of how many people are addressing climate change. Think about how many talented scientists and people are really trying to address the issues of climate change. What if we had that same kind of dedication to addressing the issue of political polarization? We'd get a lot further a lot faster. Political affiliation, said Micha Goodman, has become our primary identity. He quotes the book by Ezra Klein, Why We Are Polarized, and he says, this is not just about policies. This is not just about disagreeing about the best way forward. What we're experiencing right now is that our political identity has become our primary identity. In talking about how people feel about people from the other party, the difference between what used to be in terms of, okay, so they have very wrong ideas, but they're probably good people. That feeling, they have very wrong-headed ideas. Some of them are even dangerous, but they're good people. They mean well. The gap between then and now is huge in terms of the shrinking of that feeling. And they've measured it in surveys. It has shrunk. Now, those people are not just good people with wrong ideas. Now, those are what? Bad people. Those are dangerous people. Those people pose an existential threat to my safety. And once we get to that point where our political party becomes our primary identification with as polarized as we are, it becomes the recipe for something very dangerous to democracy. Micha Goodman, and talking and in looking at Ezra Klein's book, says that Jews now feel more aligned with people of their own political party than they do to other Jews. This is the first time in history that has happened. This is the blessing 
of the possibility of assimilation into American society. We have never had it this good. Yes, yes, there are things. There's anti-Semitism, of course. It's never, okay, yes. We have never had it this good. The proof is that we now feel closer to people of our own political party than we do to other Jews. Because we don't have to hang out just with the Jews. Because we have the opportunity, the blessing, to be full citizens of this country and have since this country's inception. We know we are in a crisis. We know, and many of us feel, threatened by the times that we're living in. But Yehuda Kurtzer reminded us that both the idea of America and the idea of Israel both came out of deep and serious crises. The urgency to us right now, obviously, seems about winning battles, right? We need to be winning the battles out there. But Jewish history, Kurtzer reminds us, teaches us that a lofty idea can be that we may lose right now and we may lose for a long time. Let me say that again. It can be a very lofty idea and ideal that we are losing right now and we may lose for a long time. When the temple was destroyed, the rabbis had nothing. No sanctuary, no ritual, no priesthood, no Judaism, no nothing. We should have disappeared in that moment. That moment of history should have obliterated the Jewish people. The Israelite cult was destroyed. Okay, we're exiled to other places. Bye. What relevance were the Israelite texts, the Israelite wisdom literature, our ethics, our values, We were exiled. We had no authority, no sovereignty anywhere. If you look at America in the 1850s, Theodore Parker, a Unitarian minister working on behalf of the ending of slavery, felt the same way, as did so many people in this country, another time in our country where truly it was coming apart this democracy. And so Kurtzer said at more vulnerable vulnerable times for Jews and Americans in their history than Jews or Americans are facing right now, both at the destruction of the temple back then and in the 1850s, Jews and Americans dreamed of their futures in much bigger ways than we do now. In times of greater crisis, Jews and Americans dreamed about the future in bigger ways than we do now. Is any contemporary frustration we have now, does any one of them hold a candle to the political, existential, and theological anxiety that the rabbis faced in the first centuries of the Common Era? I don't think so. Does anything about the American project feel as existentially threatened as it did in the 1850s? Maybe. But even if we say yes, it feels just as dangerous now as those times, then Kurtzer said that we need to talk not only about how do I win the very real challenges and issues, local and political, that we're facing, 
But how do we articulate a bigger dream, a bigger vision of the future than the one that currently exists? It doesn't exist. But can we dream about that which we want to bring in to the world? And he said, paradoxically, our position of less vulnerability today makes us not do this. It makes us retreat to supporting a version of the known. It makes us think smaller. We're comfortable. So we retreat into the known. We're comfortable enough. And so we think and we dream small. They built communities of believers, both the rabbis and those in the 1850s in America, they built communities of believers that were dedicated to an idea that orients people towards the problems that they were trying to solve. This is what he challenged us with at Hartman. Your rabbis, your American rabbis, your Canadian rabbis, your European rabbis, your Israeli rabbis, they challenged us saying, will you think big? Will you dream Or will you retreat and think small only about how to win the next small battle? And he said, this idea is there in the Psalms. It's that old. The world is built on chesed. We don't come from a naive tradition. We don't come from a tradition that says, oh, it's all hunky-dory. It's all perfect. The Jews have always lived. The Israelites lived. They were always in the middle between the empire of Egypt and the empire of Mesopotamia. They always got schmiced. Always. They got run over in the battles between the big powers on the coast there. You know it. You've been to the hotels in Tel Aviv. Always we got run over. So they've always lived, our tradition has always lived in a sense of peril, a sense of being small, a sense of being weak. And yet, in the Psalms it says, Olam chesed yibaneh, the world is built with chesed. Na'ah, is what a lot of you are going to say, na'ah, look out there, turn on CNN, turn on whatever. $50 to your favorite charity, Amy. So, So... It's a good thing I have notes. So so this idea that the world is built with loving kindness, it, it doesn't suggest that it's done. It suggests instead that that is the nature of the universe. This universe is put together in a way that it is built with chesed, with love, if we are ready to do it. If we're ready to invest in ideas, Big ideas, big dreams. This is the definition of a long-term game, said Kurtzer. And he talks about how long it took the rabbis to have any power for anybody to listen to them. They worked for centuries. They wrote the Mishnah. They wrote the Talmud. It's the sixth century. Are any of the Jews listening to the rabbis? Do Jews ever listen to the rabbis? They weren't listening to the rabbis. How did the rabbis come to power? Do you know? The leaders of the church who now controlled all the places Jews lived. The leaders of the church looked at the Jews and said, looked at the Jewish community and said, who looks like us? Who looks like they're in charge of those folks? 
Oh, right, the ones with the beards arguing about kashrut and hand washing in the corner. Those guys. So the bishops of the church made the rabbis the heads of the Jewish communities. That's how the rabbis got the Jews to listen, because of the Christians. But what happened was that the rabbis had a vast corpus of Jewish ideals, values, ethics, teachings, challenges, hopes, dreams. They had a huge corpus of that literature that they'd been writing all the time that they had no power. The vision of a long-term game. They had what to craft Judaism out of when they got power, when someone would listen to them because they'd been doing the work all along before there was any evidence that any of it would matter. That is the challenge Yehuda Kurtzer gave to us. What does it mean for American Jews, he asked us, to reacclimate to the story of a dreaming about America? What would that look like? And he says that he has a lot of grievances with the ways in which what it means to participate politically in America on behalf of our passions means the support of very narrow, concrete political positions and very little opening to actually talk about America as it should be. How thin our political discourse has become is also a part of that same phenomenon, a kind of distancing from large-scale collective social thinking. And social media, which ironically should be a place for really powerful essentialism, for us to have that kind of conversation, actually has done the opposite. It's become a tool for dismantling seriously well-held positions and turning them into a bunch of sound bites. Shame on us. Shame on us. Doniel Hartman turned to us and he said... I'm glad all of you are here, and I'm going to say it to you. I'm glad all of you are here. And then he said to us, this is not a vacation. This is not a spa. You did not come to a spa. You did not come here to relax. You came here to work. What is that work? He said that work is dropping in leaving your lives for a little while and schlepping all the way to Jerusalem, renting an apartment on Airbnb, getting here and slowing down your thinking, allowing yourselves to think deeper. That's what I want to challenge us to do. He challenged us and we had to do it eight hours a day. I'm not going to ask you all to do that. But he was right. How can we possibly dream big? How can we possibly return to expansive thinking that can be what the future's built on if we don't take the time to do that? If we don't give ourselves the opportunity to turn to our tradition, to look at what's there? What does the timeless wisdom of our tradition have to say to us about right now? About what we're afraid of? About what we're inspired by? Do we even know? No. But here's the thing. It serves two purposes, dropping into our tradition, listening to the wisdom of our collective writings over centuries, 
over thousands of years. What does it do? It doesn't just give us what to hope with and dream with and build on. What does it give us? It gives us a thicker Jewish identity. And what does having a thicker Jewish identity do? Challenges the idea that our primary identity is our political identity. We have got to find ways to expand and thicken other identities. The more we're bowling alone, the more political polarization will continue to divide us. Therefore, in answering Doniel's challenge, I scrapped every single idea I had for teaching this year. And instead, I'm going to teach Foundations for a Thoughtful Judaism from the Hartman Institute. It is their curriculum addressing the foundational ideas, ideals, philosophy, and texts of our people. And I'm going to invite you, and that's y'all at home too, y'all in the sanctuary, all y'all, kulchem, all y'all are invited to drop in. And it's not going to be a vacation. And it's not going to be a spa. We're going to work. We're going to take the time to disengage from screens, We're going to disengage from errands. We're going to disengage from everything that still has to be done when you get back home. And we're going to drop in to studying the texts and all of the many ways our tradition has oriented itself to all kinds of challenges. And we're going to talk. And we are going to find ourselves learned in those texts and inspired, hopefully, by them and by each other. I invite you to join me. Can-offs. You'll be there, yes? Yeah. All right. Foundations for Thoughtful Judaism. Look for it in your email. It's on the screens outside. We're going to do this work because that is the way Olam Chesed Yibane becomes the reality. When we with love and patience and willingness and energy lean into what our tradition has to say about the issues of our time. Olam Chesed Yibane. Will you join me in this conversation? Will you join me in what has been proven both by the Jewish people and in America and so many places in this world to be the only way to deal with really dangerous, existentially challenging moments, and that is to learn together, to dream big together, to build a world of godliness requires each of us one by one to live our life in the fullest way possible. The brick of our life may be the corner brick, or part of the support beam, says a commentary on Olam Chesed Yibane from Psalm 89. We may not be at the top of the highest point, but our brick is no less important. Olam Chesed Yibane. Together, we can make that real.